0: The title of the message tonight is this. Why do good people sometimes do bad things? Now, when you hear that, those of you who know the Bible, the first thing that probably comes to your mind is, well, there are no such thing, or there is no such thing as good people. Because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And that's true. In the uh, in that sense, nobody is good to begin with, according to God's standard and measured to the person of, or against the person of Jesus Christ. we've all sinned, we've all fallen short, none is righteous, no not one. But did you know that the same Bible that says there's none righteous, in other words, we're not perfectly righteous the same Bible says that some people are good. For example, in Acts chapter 11, we read that Barnabas was a good man. And so in Scripture, we do find that there are some whom God has said himself, this person was a good person. Not not a perfect person, not a perfectly righteous person. But as far as categorizing somebody as a good person or a bad person, the Bible says, well, these people were good people. And yet, the question tonight is, why do good people sometimes do bad things? I think about All the good people in the Bible. I think about Adam and Eve. They get a bad rap because of the sin that they committed, but keep in mind that before they ate the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve were walking in unbroken fellowship with God. Both of them made in the image of God. We too have been made in the image of God. The only problem is the image has been marred. Our image of God is marred. But before they sinned, Adam and Eve had an unmarred image of God. I mean, they were with God every day in the evening time. God would come to the Garden of Eden, and God and Adam and Eve would go on a walk. So we would say they were good people, and yet... They did the thing that God had told them not to do. The only thing that God told them not to do, they ate the forbidden fruit. I think about Noah. The Bible says of Noah that he walked with God. He was a a good person. Anybody would say that. And yet, even though Noah had lived a life of obedience and faithfulness and built that ark and gotten his family on the ark and then gotten his family off the ark, we read that on one occasion Noah went out and got drunk. And so now we find a good man doing something that's bad. And this pattern continues all through the Bible. The next major character we come to is Abraham. Abraham is described in the Bible as a friend of God. Now, anybody who would be called a friend of God, we would have to say of that person, well, this must be a good person. He must be a good man to have been God's friend. And yet on more than one occasion, this good man did a bad thing. He lied. He told a lie. He lied. And we find him doing something that he never should have done. We fast forward into the book of Exodus and we come to Moses. Now, as we think about Moses, did you know in Numbers chapter 12 in verse 3, we read that that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And one of the translations says, he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Moses was a good man, and yet, and we'll see this a little bit later tonight, on one occasion, Moses went out and killed a man. He killed a man, cold-blooded murder, and then he buried him in the sand, a good man doing something bad, David. The Bible says of David, he was a man after God's own heart. If ever a good man lived in that sense of being good, it was David, a man after God's own heart, and yet David, we know his story, he committed adultery to cover it up. He committed murder. We look back on that situation. It is as though David's life is a bowl of cream, and there's this blackberry in that bowl. And we look at the beautiful bowl of cream, and all we can see is that blackberry. He committed these two sins. Here we find it again. A good man. And yet he's doing a bad thing. We go to the New Testament. The pattern continues. Simon Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Not only that, in the inner circle with, with, uh, with James and John. And yet Peter did a bad thing. He denied that he knew Jesus. And so, the, t- the title tonight and the question tonight is a good question. Why do good people sometimes do bad things? Last week, we had a similar sermon, but different. We were talking last week about King Asa in the Old Testament, one of the best kings that Judah ever had. Anybody who was making a list of Judah's great kings would have Asa at the top of that list. And we see Asa, King Asa, doing many good things. When he became king, the first thing he did, he went all around Jerusalem and all throughout Judah, and he's having these pagan altars of worship torn down. You say, hey, he said, you're, doing, you're doing a good, not only are you a good man, you're doing a good thing now having these foreign places of worship torn down. His grandmother was into pagan worship, and so he dethroned her. He was more loyal to God than he was to his own grandmother. We well, you say, man, that's something else, putting loyalty to God above family loyalty. Asa, that's a good thing. On another occasion, an an army from Ethiopia, a million-man army is coming against Jerusalem. And Asa's army had 580,000 men, almost half the size of the invading Ethiopians. And so what did Asa do? He prayed. He cried out to God, God, help us, spare us, deliver us from this army. God defeated the Ethiopians Gave an undermanned army victory. And we say, hey, so you're doing so good. We're so proud of you. A good man doing good things. But on another occasion, another army came against him. And instead of turning to God, he turned to a king of yet another nation. And he said to that king, if you and I can come together, if your nation and our nation can form a pact, our nations together will be stronger than this other nation that's invading us. And we can have victory. And they came together and they got the victory But then God sent a prophet to Asa and said, Asa, that was a bad thing you did because when the army was invading you, instead of turning to me, you turned to that other king and now there are going to be consequences for that sin. So for the first time in Asa's life, and we saw this last week, we saw a good man doing a bad thing. Not an immoral thing, no, but a bad thing, an unwise thing. On another occasion, Asa developed a problem in his feet. He went to the doctor. You would expect him to go to the doctor. But he didn't seek the Lord. And the Bible says he he didn't seek the Lord. He only saw the physicians. And he had this problem for about two years, and he died with it. And he did a bad thing in that he didn't seek God. So the question tonight is a good question. Why do good people sometimes do bad things? I'm looking around the room tonight on a cold January night. And as far as I can tell, everybody in this room falls under the category of a good person. That would be my judgment of you, that you're all good. Let me ask you this question. How many of you good people would ever say that there's been a time in your life when you did a bad thing? Just raise your hand. Now, if you're not raising your hand, you're doing a bad thing right now. Because you're lying. Because we've all done something bad. And as I said recently in some sermon, all of us who've done something bad... If we have never felt regret or shame for that, well, shame on us because we should feel bad every time we do something bad. Now, the question tonight is a good question, but let me try to give the answer, and then we're going to break this down, and I think it'll be an interesting Bible study. I hope it'll be an interesting Bible study. The answer to the question is this. Good people sometimes do bad things Because sometimes we, notice I'm putting we, it's first person, it includes me, because we follow the impulse of the flesh instead of following the impulse of the Spirit. Every one of those examples I just gave from the Bible, and we're going to see some of them tonight, the reason they did that bad thing is because when they were confronted with a situation, they had an impulse, a fleshly impulse to do this, and they did it. Instead of waiting for the impulse of the Spirit to do something that would have been the right thing. Now, all of that said tonight, if you'll open your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter number 2. And I want us to begin tonight just seeing, and I'm not going to belabor any of these. I've listed out four impulses, four types of impulses that, that sometimes we deal with. And in fact, we may deal with them differently And we do deal with them differently than these Bible characters dealt with them. But it's really the same impulse, just maybe with a different uh, illustration in front of it. But the first impulse that I think we're faced with that causes us sometimes to give into the flesh instead of going by the Spirit is simply this. It is the impulse to take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we see a situation and we were all kind of raised, you know, just take the bull by the horns. And, uh, you know, if you got a problem, fix the problem. And sometimes that's the right and the responsible thing to do, but sometimes it's the unwise thing to do. In Exodus chapter 2, look with me beginning in verse number 11. Now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren, that is to the Jewish people, and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, watch verse 12. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And so, you have to keep in mind that God had placed on the heart of Moses that he was to be the deliverer of the Jewish people. For hundreds of years, they had been in Egyptian bondage and treated horribly. And God had raised Moses up and had placed in his heart a special calling on his life that he would be the one, humanly speaking, who would deliver and rescue the Jewish people. And so on this day when he goes out and sees an Egyptian fighting with a Hebrew, with with a Jew... Moses says to himself, this isn't right. The Egyptians have been mistreating the Jewish people far too long anyway. And we know that God is not happy with this. We know that God is not pleased with this. We know that God wants to set his people free. And I even have a desire in my heart to be used by God to do that. And so Moses goes out. What does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. And he kills this Egyptian. It's interesting in this passage that the Bible says Moses looked this way. And then Moses looked that way. And we didn't see anybody kill the man. But there's one way Moses didn't look. He didn't look up that way, right? He didn't look up. He had an impulse. It's not right to see a Jewish person being mistreated. It'd be very much like if if somebody mistreated your spouse or mistreated your child or mistreated your friend or or mistreated somebody at work and you saw this happening and you said, this is not right and I'm going to take matters into my own hands. But more often than not, in our lives, it's not... An altercation like this. It's not a fight. It's not physical violence that that gets us. Because we just seldom thankfully seldom see a situation like this. But sometimes we all feel the impulse to take matters into our own hands, a situation, a problem, and we think, what I've got to do is I've got to get in there and fix that problem. Well, even if that's true, the first thing we should do is ask God to give us wisdom on how to address the problem and just give God a little bit of time and not just say i've got to take matters into my own hands we should always put prayer between between where we are now and the next step that we're going to take god show me what to do god lead me in what to do so that i won't make a foolish mistake and so that i won't like moses did more than foolish to make a sinful or a bad mistake and so don't take matters into your own hands just just Pause and think and pray and ask God what he would have you to do. And then when you do that, wait and listen just for a little bit. And let God speak to you. One of the things I'm going to say at the end, in fact, I'll go ahead and say it now, and I'll try to remember to say it at the end as well. But it'd be good to say it twice. When you're in a situation, you see something like here. Something is happening and it's not right. Now Moses would have been within his rights to have gone and broken up that fight. That had been a good thing. But to kill one of the two, that was a bad thing. But when you have an impulse of the flesh to do something, in this instance, to take marriage into your own hands, I'm going to encourage you tonight. I'm going to encourage me tonight, all of us. Before you do anything, count to 10. Before you act, just count to 10 to yourself. I mean, if you're in a conversation with somebody else, don't do this out loud because they'll know what you're doing. But to yourself. One, two, all the way to ten. What that ten-second count will do, it will just slow everything down. And it will give you ten seconds to to think and to pause. There are a lot of people in jails and prisons tonight that had they counted to ten, they wouldn't be there. And there are a lot of sins that we've committed. Easy to point the finger at them. But by the grace of God, that could be us. There are sins we have committed tonight that had we counted to 10, we wouldn't have done that. We wouldn't have said that. We wouldn't have got in the middle of that had we just counted to 10. So in that 10-second count, as silly as that sounds, you just count it off in your mind, one, two. And while you're doing that count, if you can pray while you're doing that, Just say, God, what would you have me to do? Just silently, God, show me how to respond. Ten seconds. And then, at the end of that ten seconds, I can almost guarantee you, you will have an impulse from the Spirit. And God, His Spirit in you, will impress upon you. Even if He doesn't tell you what to do that quickly, He'll tell you what not to do. And it'll be an impression. Keep your mouth shut. Just... Tell the person you need to circle back around, let you sleep on it. Uh, Something like that. But just count to ten. See if the Spirit of God doesn't give you an impulse. And then follow. It's really just this simple. It's not complicated. Follow the impulse of the Spirit instead of following the impulse of the flesh. And had Moses done, had Moses, when he saw what was happening, and saying, this is not right, he had that impulse. Do something. Well, again, he could have broken up the fight. He could have done that; would have been fine. But had Moses, even before he broke up the fight, had Moses had just counted to ten and said, "God, show me what to do," I think God would have said, "Get the Egyptian off the Hebrew. Break up the fight. Protect the man, but don't kill the uh, the Egyptian." So I'm going to encourage you to count to ten, and I encourage me to count to ten and then follow the impulse of the Spirit and not the impulse of the flesh. You see, if we don't take those 10 seconds or so, what happens is the impulse of the flesh is so strong that we don't even recognize the impulse of the Spirit. I was watching. In fact, this is public, so I can tell you who it was. As I told you on Sunday, uh, I've always been a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. Let me add, that is getting harder and harder to do, by the way. And getting to be a fan of the Texans is getting easier and easier to do, by the way. This team we have is good. This C.J. Stroud is the real deal. And uh, I kind of think they're going to go into Baltimore and win the game on Saturday. That's kind of my... But don't put any money on that because I'm a preacher, not a gambler. And you shouldn't put money on it no matter what I am. So anyway. But I was listening to an interview the other night of one of the Dallas Cowboys that I used to like watch play, Michael Irvin. Graduated from Miami. Tremendous wide receiver. And went on to play with the Cowboys. Won three Super Bowls. But while Michael played for the Cowboys. In fact, I've often thought maybe we could get him down here just to share his testimony. Because it's a powerful testimony. But he was sharing his testimony with a reporter. And they got talking about how when Michael played for the Cowboys, he got in all kinds of legal trouble. I mean, drugs, alcohol, uh, women, I mean, just, I think Michael, Michael has said, you know, anything that I could have done, I did. And on one particular night, he was in a hotel room with a woman and uh, drugs were in the room, alcohol was in the room, the drugs that were in the room, completely illegal. And it, it, he was, there, were mo- there were many people in this, in this room, in this hotel situation. And the police came, knocked on the door, the door was open, the police go in, they find the drugs, Michael gets arrested, others, it's just a mess. And he goes to jail and he stands, he's on trial, and anyway, it's just a, just a mess. Here's what I, I, I think I had heard this one other time and I had forgotten this part of the story. Michael Irvin said to Joe Buck, who now is calling ESPN games on Monday night. Is it, Phenomenal announcer. He said to Joe Buck, he said, Joe, before I went to that hotel to be with that woman and to do those drugs, he said, Joe, as clearly as I'm speaking to you right now, God spoke to me. And God said, Michael, don't go to that hotel. Don't do what you're planning on doing. He said, God told me what not to do, and I did it anyway. You see, there's an example where a man had the impulse of the Spirit, but he also had the impulse of the flesh. But at least he recognized the impulse of the Spirit. And what I'm saying is, if you'll count to 10, see, God, you say, well, God's not necessarily going to tell me what to do in 10 seconds. Well, I mean, you can't ever put God in the corner and say God's always going to do this or never do that unless it's one of His promises. But listen, friend, God wants you not to sin more than you want not to sin. And so at the moment of temptation, when that impulse of the flesh is strong, no, I I think God will in 10 seconds or less if you'll just let, let yourself breathe, let your mind think, let your heart listen. The Spirit of God will give you that impulse. Don't do it. Don't say it. Don't go there. You're going to regret it. Michael said God told me. I knew it. And I went against it. And it was the worst decision that I ever made. And you know. It's a powerful testimony that he has, but it's certainly something for us to keep in in our minds tonight. The second type of impulse, and maybe I should have told that story under this second point because this is really the, the type of thing that got Michael in trouble on that night, and it is the impulse to gratify the flesh, to do what you want to do. We're all flesh. We're all human. Basically, we all have the same desires. I mean, There would be some variation there, but basically they're all the same. Now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're familiar with David and Bathsheba and how he committed adultery. But I want us just to back up here and see how it was that David got himself in this trouble and how it was that he committed this sin. And we'll see with David, as we saw with Moses, had he counted to 10 and had he determined the the impulse of the Spirit... And maybe he had the impulse of the Spirit, but he certainly ignored it. it, it this, this, whole, this whole situation could have been avoided, and this whole sin could have been, uh, could have been avoided. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But now watch this last sentence in verse 11. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, his first mistake was he should have been out with his men fighting. That was what kings did in Bible. Now, in our day, we think, well, what's wrong with this? The president would always stay in the White House. He's not going to war. That's true in our day. But in Bible times, when an, when an army went out to fight, I'm not the king, I'm not saying was, was at the front of that. He wasn't in the place of the most danger. But the king was out with his men, and they were fighting. But on this occasion, David remained at Jerusalem. So there's a, there's a lesson here for us. When we're not where we ought to be, that means we're more likely to do what we ought not to do. Had David been where he usually was during a war with his men, he never would have seen Bathsheba. But he, wa- he wasn't where he should have been, which means he was where he shouldn't have been. Man, it's tremendous application to that. I mean, the, 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 the easiest application to that is just I mean, you're in church on a Wednesday night. You're where you ought to be tonight. You are where you ought to be tonight. But when we are where we shouldn't be, that means we're not where we ought to be. And that means trouble is much easier and more likely to come our way. Look in verse number 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that this all took place on, uh, well, south of today, what would be the headquarters of Jerusalem today, on, on Mount Zion, the city of David. And that, that city, it's, it, it is, it is a, it's a mountain, uh, and the houses were built progressively up the mountain. And back in Bible times, when these houses were built, the baths, the bathtubs were on the top of the roof. And so if you lived at the top of the hill like David did, he was the king, and you go out on your roof to look over the city, you can look down and you can see all the other roofs. And you can see what's happening on all the other rooftops. And so David was seeing that, and on this occasion, he saw, notice this, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and behold, the woman was very beautiful. I wish you would underline that word saw. He saw. That's the first verb here. So there's no sin in that, by the way. When David saw Bathsheba bathing, he had not committed a sin. He just he did you can't help it. But what Martin Luther King said, Martin Luther King, that was his birthday, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday money. What did Martin Luther, the reformer, say? He said, you can't help it if a bird flies over your head. But you can help it if that bird builds a nest in your hair. So when, when David saw Bathsheba bathing, there's no sin in that. The bird just flew over, but he kept looking and thinking and lusting. And that's where the sin took place. And we see this in the very next verse. Look in verse number three. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So now David, he started out, he just saw her. what he should have done. He should have just turned around and said, now, Lord, help me just to get that image out of my mind. I'm going to go back in my house I'm not going to look again. It wasn't the look that got him. It was the second look. We might say today, it wasn't the fact that you were flipping channels and saw something bad. It was the fact that you didn't keep flipping channels. It was that second look. That's what got him. And on that second look, or that really not even the second look, just a continued look. He inquires. He sends one of his messengers, one of his... uh, Aids or assistance, and now he takes her. Look in verse, in verse 3, the word is in, sent and inquired. In verse 4, he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And so David is not where he should have been. He wasn't out fighting. He was back home in the beauty of that palace, sleeping and taking it easy, and he goes out on sees this woman, instead of going back in and clearing his head and praying. I mean, it's easy. I'm not being critical of David. We've all sinned. But I'm saying, as I'm analyzing this, instead of going in and praying and writing a psalm or or doing something, he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba and bad goes to worse. But the point is, the impulse itself was to gratify the flesh. All these verbs that we see, he saw, he sent. He inquired, he took, he lay with her. We don't find any phrase that says he prayed, he thought, he counted to ten. He said, God, help me to resist this. God, what would you have me to do? God, I know what you would have me to do. God, help me to do it. He didn't do it. It was the impulse to gratify the flesh. And so as far as we can tell here, he was totally unable to discern the impulse of the Spirit. The, impulse, the third impulse that I want to mention tonight is the, is the impulse to go along with the crowd. Now, there are different ways I could have said that, but the impulse to go along with the crowd. Now, let's go to the New Testament, and let's look at this sin that Simon Peter committed when he denied knowing Jesus because we know that if anybody loved Jesus, it was Peter. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 26, have you found it? Matthew chapter 26 Look beginning in verse number 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. This is the Thursday night of his arrest. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, now watch this, I will not deny you, exclamation point in my Bible. And and so said all the disciples. Now, I believe when Peter said that, he meant that. I don't believe he was making that up. As best as Peter knew his own heart, he meant that. Lord, I will never deny you. But remember what the scripture says, the heart is deceitful above all things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read these words, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We we put ourselves in a dangerous place when we say, I would never commit that sin. I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never participate in that. That's what Peter said. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, we've seen Peter's Pledge of Allegiance. I'll never do that. Now, look in the same chapter in verse number 47. I'm sorry, in verse number 69, verse 69. But Peter said, now Jesus has been arrested. He's at the high priest's house now. And Peter is following at a distance. In fact, if you look back in verse 58, this is another sermon but a tremendous thought. It said, verse 58 begins by saying, but Peter followed Jesus at a distance. So here, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being taken to Caiaphas' house. And Peter's still following Jesus, but now he's following at a distance. And that distance between him and Jesus became a, a dangerous and even a disastrous thing. Now in verse 69, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you were saying. You see, at this moment, Peter was surrounded by people who would have been anti-Jesus. This was the courtyard of the high priest. That whole crowd was wanting Jesus to be crucified. And that's why Peter's following at a distance. He's not wanting to be too identified with Jesus or too aligned with Jesus. And so He said to that girl, I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. See, Peter knew he was was the only person in this circle who was a true follower of Jesus. And instead of saying, now it's easy for me to say this here in the church, amongst Christians who we all basically believe the same thing, Peter was outnumbered in, in, in a crowd hostile to Jesus. It's easy for me to say, Peter, why don't you why didn't you just say, Yes, I know Jesus? I've been following him for three years. He is my Savior and my master and my Lord and God and King. Now had Peter said that, the angels would have applauded that. But here in the in the in the in the in the in the fire of, of this night and in the heat of the battle. He denies him again. And then, in verse 73, a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. In other words, you're not from Jerusalem. Your accent is different. You're from northern Galilee, northern Israel and Galilee. Then, now watch this, Peter began to curse, that is, to call down curses, and to swear, that is, to take an oath and say, I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And in Luke's account of this same story, after that rooster crowed, after that third denial, the Bible says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And when, when they caught eyes, and Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus, not anger, not judgment, but heartache and sadness and that look, that a parent would give a child like, "How could you?" Disappointment. The Bible says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. But the point I'm making is, here's is Peter, outnumbered on this night, and the pressure that he was feeling to go along with the crowd overpowered the obligation that he had and that we have to stand up for Jesus and, and to do what is right. It's interesting to me, back, if, look, if I look back at the end of verse 34 where he, verse 35, where he says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And yet before this chapter ends, and back then before that night ended, he did the thing that he thought he would never do. So like when that, when that girl, when that first girl said to him, you're with him, here's the question. Would it have been different if Peter had said one, Two, three, help me, Lord, to be courageous because I'm scared. Lord, look what they're doing to you. What are they going to do to me? Four, five, six, seven, and somewhere about six or seven, I believe the impulse of the Spirit would have kicked in and said, Peter, be strong. Be courageous. Do the thing that you know is right. As Charles Stanley used to say, obey God. And leave all the consequences to him. And then by the time Peter said 9, 10, he would have had the courage to have spoken. And to have said, yes, I'm with him. And we're together. And whatever that means is what that means. But I won't deny it. But he didn't count to 10. And he didn't pray. He did what we all have done. And sometimes what we all do. He let that impulse of the flesh get him. Now, it's interesting. Today, I was in my car. And I had the radio on, and I was listening to a preacher, and I didn't get catch all of his sermon, Alistair Begg in Cleveland, Ohio, if you ever listen to him. He's a fine preacher. And he was quoting a theologian who said this, and I thought, man, does that ever fit what we're going to be talking about at First Baptist tonight? He, here's the quote, the best of men are still men at best. The best of men. I mean, I'm up here at the beginning of this sermon tonight talking about Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter. They sinned. What does it say to us? It says the best of men, the best of women, the best of people. We're still people at best. And we still have this human nature. And so we still have to be very very careful. Adrian Rogers used to have a little memento, a little plaque on his desk that said, he who would not sin, no, he who would not slip stays away from slippery places. He who would not slip stays away from slippery places. He who would not sin stays away from places where we ought not to be and things we ought not to be doing and, and, and things we shouldn't be participating in. And so, the impulse to go along with the crowd. Now, one more, because Moses, David, and Peter, good men, loved God. They, the impulse of the flesh got them, just like it's gotten us. Last point here tonight, and that is the impulse to defend yourself. I think sometimes in our world, in our lives today, this gets us in more trouble than anything. We hear something said about us, about somebody close to us, or maybe it's not even about us. Maybe we hear something said about society or politics or something, and in our better judgment, in our heart of hearts, we just know it's wrong. We just know it's not right, and there's just something in us. That just wants to set the record straight. And there are times when we need to speak up. But you're in Matthew chapter 26. Now look in verse 59. Because I want to show you an example tonight of somebody who did the right thing. When the impulse of the flesh would have tripped most of us up, it certainly didn't get Jesus. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, to Jesus, now do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Now most of us had we been Jesus, would have said, well, sir, it is true that I said that I would destroy, destroy this temple and I'll bring it back in three days. But I wasn't talking about Herod's temple. I was talking about my body. And what I was saying was, my body is going to be destroyed. I'm, going to, I'm about to be crucified. But three days later, I'm coming back to life. So what they said is technically true. But the application is wrong. I've made no threat to destroy this temple. And that's all Jesus would have had to have said. And the high priest would have said, oh, well, okay. Well, that makes sense. Even though he wouldn't have believed about the resurrection, he would have understood. But let's not verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. Friend, let me say this. As Christians, sometimes we have to be willing to be misunderstood. We have to be willing to let somebody think something about us. It's not true. I mean... Just, you can't always, Jesus didn't. I mean, he's the example for everything good. He kept silent and he did not say anything. So remember this, and I'm not saying there's never, you know, sometimes we do have to respond to lies with truth. I do understand that. But sometimes we have to respond to certain things by being silent. Depends on how God leads. You know, sometimes God may say speak and sometimes God may say, be silent. I was talking to a friend the other day on the phone, and we were talking about trying to figure out when to speak and when to be silent. And this is a is a godly lady, and uh, lives in a different city. And I've always considered her a, uh, and I still do consider her to be a role model. But we were talking about this, and as we were having our conversation, a scripture passage came to my mind. That, uh, that I shared with her on this conversation. I said, I can't tell you exactly what to say or what not to say. I said, but I want to share this scripture verse with you, and I can't find it now. It's in Proverbs. But there are two consecutive verses in Proverbs, and one of them says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So when you hear somebody saying something foolish, answer them. Set, tell the truth. The very next verse says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be as foolish as he is. Basically, you know, you'll, be in the same, you'll be in an argument with him. So one verse says, answer a fool. <laughs> Another verse says, don't answer a fool. Somebody says, well, there you have it. The Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. In some instances, we do have to answer, and in other instances, we don't have to answer. And we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know when to say something and when to keep quiet. And so, here Jesus, he knew what they were saying was perverted and distorted and not right. But he didn't say anything, he just kept quiet. Listen, friend, when I say we have to be willing to be misunderstood, we do. We have to be willing for somebody to think something about us that's not quite right. Let them think that. Again, to quote Adrian Rogers, if I quote him again, I've told you, when I get to heaven, I owe him a meal at my mansion up there. I'm going to have to have him down and give him a free meal. But he used to say this to his congregation, if you please Jesus, it doesn't matter who you displease. But if you displease Jesus, it doesn't matter who you please. In Galatians, Paul said, if I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be serving Jesus like this. So it's not about pleasing people. We don't, want to, we don't want to displease people. We don't. We want to be you know, amicable and, and kind and tenderhearted. But ultimately, we want to please the Lord. And just remember this about this defending yourself part. God will do a better job defending you than you could ever do defending yourself. He is the defender. He is our defender. We read that in the Scripture. So as I said a moment ago, this was going to be my conclusion, but I've already given it away. The next time you're tempted to do any of these things, the impulse of the flesh, to take matters into your own hands, to gratify the flesh, to go along with the crowd, to defend yourself, just stop, take a deep breath, count to ten, God help me to do the right thing. Show me what to do. And by the time you get to 10, you're going to have that impulse of the Spirit. And then, once you have the impulse of the Spirit, now you've got two impulses. Now you have to choose which impulse will you follow. I encourage you, I encourage me, God admonishes all of us. Follow the impulse of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, those who are led by the Spirit of God these are the children of God. Amen. And so, Father, we know that your voice, like it was with Michael Irvin on that night, it's a it's a voice we hear in our heart. But it can, even though it's a, in a sense, it's silent, it can be strong. God, I ask you to help us in the moment of decision to count to ten. And then to follow the impulse of the Spirit. God, we have all done bad. We have all sinned. But going forward, Lord, help us to sin less by doing what we've talked about tonight. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed, do you know for sure that you are saved? That Jesus is living in your heart? that your sins have been forgiven. You saw at the beginning when I said, how many of you have ever made done something bad? We all raised our hand. So if you say, man, I've sinned. I... But you're in a room of people who've sinned. The world is full of people who've sinned. The only difference about those of us who are saved is we've done something about our sins. We've taken them to Jesus. Asked for His forgiveness. And ask Him to help us not do those sins again. Tonight, You need to join us. You're not different from us. You're just like us. And we're just like you. We are sinful people. The best of people are still people at best. Tonight, if you don't know for sure that you're saved, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Jesus. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be.